Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. In today's special episode, I'm joined by Jessica Yellen, an author and former CNN chief White House correspondent. Now she's the host of what she calls News Not Noise on her Instagram handle, at Jessica Yellen. Hundreds of thousands tune in to her daily updates and long, insightful Instagram TV interviews with various political experts and COVID-19 experts. She's a fantastic, fair, and brilliant interviewer who asks all the questions you are likely to have, regardless of where you might sit on the political spectrum. While she offers some analysis, she manages to present the information in a cogent and insightful way so that you can draw your own informed conclusions without any added drama. In short, she's become many people's absolute go-to for digestible news you can trust without all the noise. We had this conversation on Wednesday, November 4th at about 1.30 Pacific time when many states were still undecided. We talked through the state of things as they stand right now and how she thinks the next few weeks will play out. We're also going to discuss the state of news and information in the country and a path forward, because regardless of final outcome, we are a country that's deeply polarized and divided. I try to do information, not a panic attack. So my philosophy is that part of the way TV news gets ratings is by competing for your anxiety. Like, how can we make the conflict in the story even more intense to trigger a fear response so that you're addicted to watching more. And I want to undo that so that you don't feel that when you're coming to me. And what I want to be able to do is give you enough information that you feel informed, but not such a fire hose of things that you're confused about what matters. And I think that's part of what people crave is just clarity on the things that they need to pay attention to and then permission to ignore the stories that are getting a lot of attention but aren't worth your time. Okay, let's get to my chat with Jessica Yellen. I know you've been warning this, that this wasn't going to be a decisive election night victory or even the day before, but I still feel, I mean, Clearly, I live in Los Angeles like you. People who listen to the podcast know that I'm quite progressive and still shocked. I mean, for, I, I, like so many others, thought that it was going to be a repudiation of Trump and some sort of blue wave. And we we didn't see that. Are you surprised? You know, I'm surprised by a few places and how off it was with the polling and the analysis. I'm surprised by a few demographic groups and the way they went. I mean, the thing is, is that every, 
don't blame yourself for expecting something different. You know, we <laughs> warned that this current outcome could happen, but the numbers also suggested that it could have been a clear victory for Biden and that it could have been a blue wave. And the outcome wasn't even close. So yeah. there's a lot of head scratching today. Certainly. I mean, and it's it sort of goes to this idea, I think, that either our polling is so polling is no longer a science and is just anyone's best guess or that people aren't on. I mean, what do you think is happening? I guess we won't really know for a while, but why do you think that we're so off? Is it that people don't want to admit that they're I know I've heard you ask so many people like are are people silent, quiet Trump supporters? But what do you think? What do you think is happening? Part of the model for predicting what an election outcome will be is not just how much support each candidate has, but whose supporters actually come out and vote. And that's really hard to account for and to understand in the time of COVID when people are scared to wait in line and when absentee and mail-in ballots are frankly more confusing and some are stuck in the mail, it's hard to know whose votes will actually get in in the end. And I think part of the analysis will be around which groups were energized to turn out in the end. And part of that is like the really, you know, nuts and bolts stuff of politics. Like Trump had door knockers out there longer coming to your door saying, here's your polling place. Do you need to know? I'll be back. Let me help you. That makes a difference. I also think, and we can talk about this another time or not, but that the Facebook factor is mega. And there's a lot of people who are getting disinformation on Facebook for five years from the Trump team backed by Russia. And not that the Trump team is entirely backed by Russia, but the disinformation is, you know, and and that really sways people in ways that are invisible to a lot of the traditional measures we use in politics. Right. And then you have to assume also that there's just so much confirmation bias happening and that people, you know, my mom was lamenting. She was like, but you know, those voter blocks remembered when when Clinton made the deplorable comment. And yet, you know, he's calling vets losers. And he's, you know, denouncing these people's disgusting. And yet that doesn't stick. And I'm like, I think it's just because people ultimately just want to hear what they want to hear, to some extent, right? They're looking, they're looking to confirm what they already believe is true. Yes. And take that another step, they're only seeing what they already believe is true. The echo chamber that the algorithms have built means that if you're there trying to, if you're being fed information in Spanish that Biden is a socialist, your feed is filled with evidence that that's true. And if you go and Google that, you're going to find more evidence because the algorithm is built to confirm what you're already looking for. And so our our media and our tech is like creating these silos of information that are changing our democracy. Mm. No, it's true. And that's that's essentially what happened with the Latinx vote, right, which they expected to go far more blue. But people were scared by this, the specter of socialism, which is a fabrication. But that that seems to have definitely made a big impact in Florida. And are, are you seeing the same thing in Nevada? It's a little early when we're having this conversation to know for sure. That's going to be an area of inquiry for the data analysts for a while. You know, the Latino vote, the Latinx vote went more Trump than anyone expected, especially in Florida. And, you know, one of the things I've been told is that the Trump team has been working with evangelicals, 
leaders, evangelical pastors in the Latin community in Florida for a really long time. And so there's a real conversation that's going on over time. And that's what we call persuasion politics, you know, in this game where you have to be there talking to the leaders. And I'm told that there isn't a real energy and force on the Democratic side engaging as well. Right. And so, you know, a conversation is happening that's taken off and, you know, the Democrats aren't in it. Right. And I've heard sort of not necessarily conflicting things, but that Biden is going to eke this out sort of on by getting more white vote. And then similarly, I think, you know, every black woman I know feels wildly betrayed by white women. And of course, the exit polls are going to skew more Republican because more Republicans voted in person. But right now, I think it's 55 percent of white women voted for Trump. Where do you think that that will ultimately land? This is something I've learned since I was a baby reporter. I don't trust exit polls. I have had so many experiences where our entire coverage has been shaped by exit polls finding. In 2004, it was about how it was morality and values issues drove the electorate. And that reshaped how we covered everything. And then that cycled out into people's perceptions of the power of, you know, evangelicals and other things. And then it turned out that they questioned whether the exit polls were accurate. I've, you know, the exits also showed that John Kerry was going to win back in the day. Like, I just think we have to actually get the data before we jump to conclusions (laughs) there. So I'm going to hold our horses on that. I will say that, you know, one of the things we have to be nuanced about is it's sort of like share of electorate. How much of the share of electorate was this Latino, because in absolute numbers, there was high turnout. It's just not what was expected or projected. And we're in the middle of counting still. So I think it's too early to make conclusions that are going to get people upset. So little patience on this one is what I advise. So clearly Trump is already, you know, challenging the results, which aren't even in, in Pennsylvania, but, and there will be in his, sounds like, challenging in Wisconsin, et cetera. How long do you expect it will take before this all shakes out? Or do you, it seems like Biden has a path to sort of put this away and maybe have a cherry on top. Do you think it'll be really protracted? Let me sort of set the stage for where we are right now, what I think it's going to come, and then a longer term view from there. And this is just scene setting for anybody listening at any time. So when we're talking Biden has won Wisconsin. Michigan is outstanding, but looks to be a Biden win by the end of the day when we're talking. And it looks like Nevada will be a Biden win by the day after this conversation. And then their outstanding question is, will Biden get Pennsylvania by the end of the week? Democrats and data analysts say yes, because the outstanding vote is in Democratic areas. So we're looking at the potential for Biden to have won all the sort of blue wall states, the Midwest states that Democrats lost in the Hillary year, but have won traditionally and that he would have, quote, rebuilt that wall. And, you know, a state like Arizona might be, you know, questioned, but he will have had enough of a win in enough places to get over 270. Right. The question is, 
Trump is coming in, challenging ballots. In one state, he's saying, stop counting the ballots. In another state, he's going to say, count in more ballots. The only consistent legal rationale is count where I won, stop where I, you know, stop where I didn't, <laughs> right? or count more where I didn't and, you know, get it. And I really think it depends how many states Biden wins and what's the margin of victory. If you right. have enough states, buy enough. These lawsuits are going to start to sound like um, noise and won't get much traction. If it's close enough in some states that could be decisive, where flipping it could give Trump a win, that's when these lawsuits could you know, really create the kind of confusion that makes this protracted and you know, potentially ugly, more right. ugly than otherwise. <laughs> Right. So right now, where we're at, there is a path for Biden, assuming he wins Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, where he doesn't need Pennsylvania Correct. or Georgia. So and if he wins one of those, then it does seem futile. But it's certainly, you know, he's Trump's already declared victory, et cetera. Like how and, and it seems like he's seeding, he's doing what he does, which is seeding that this is legitimate claim into the, you know, just saying things to say things. And do you think that, I mean, and again, impossible to predict, but do you feel like his, the people who voted for him, that there will be unrest? Or do you think that the country might actually stay relatively calm? Yesterday was quite calm. I think a lot of that depends on how some of the beacons of, you know, the leadership voices on the right respond. Already Fox News has indicated that they are hewing to the numbers. In fact, they are the they were the lead in calling Arizona for Biden and even though other news organizations have not just out of a cre- like extreme abundance of caution and maybe some pressure, they've not called it Fox today as we're speaking doubled down and said we've reviewed the numbers and we stand by our call. Mm-hmm. Team Trump is not happy about that. Something like that indicates that if these other states, when they come in, and if it's a Biden win, Fox will also call it a Biden win. And that will go a long way to creating a uniform um, set of facts that reduces the chance for you know the kind of unrest you're talking about. Right. That said, the president ain't going to stop. He's banging the drum. And if you look at what's moving on Facebook, there's plenty of confirmation in bias there. I'll tell you, like, one of the top sites is reporting that a data firm in such and such place says Trump won Arizona. And that's like trending high right now. So right. there's going to be multiple like conflicting information streams on this. And it just depends how much runway the president can get from other Republican leaders to keep banging that drum in a convincing way. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny when you're when you're talking about the fact that it is so tight and not a blue wave, I would imagine would make people feel like really trust in its legitimacy. Clearly, if if there was something afoot, which obviously there isn't, then McConnell would have lost his seat and Jamie Harrison would have won. And, you know, the Democrats did not have an amazing night. So you'd think that that would be somehow reassuring, but maybe logic just doesn't stand in these situations. Well, it's hard to, yeah, I look at all the things and I still ask what's going on. I will tell you, um, as we're speaking, CNN has called Michigan for Biden. So that okay. means Biden needs one more of Nevada, Pennsylvania, or Georgia. And he's on track to get Nevada and Pennsylvania, it looks like. I will bring back to something you just raised, which was, you know, the Senate, Republicans in the Senate even outperformed Trump. Yeah. 
So there was a really, my, my, there was really strong Republican turnout on election day. There was a lot of enthusiasm to vote. And so people will be going back and looking and asking what made you vote? What drew you to the polls? What were your issues? Right. Which is going to be fascinating fodder. I mean, and and then depending on sort of what ultimately how it lands, it does seem like it's essentially this is a race election. Right. So I think that's really disheartening and points to the fact that we have so much work to do as a country when I think so many of us thought that we were making really good progress. This is certainly an emotional check on that. I think Van Jones called it, you know, he was we were hoping for a moral victory. One question, because I know that you've, you've, you've spoken to a lot of Republicans who have left the Trump administration. Do you think that there will be relief? I know that sounds insane, potentially, but do you think that there will be relief from the surviving Republican senators, et cetera, if Biden wins? Like, do you think that there will be a secret, secret exhale? That's an interesting question. That's a really good question, because undergirding your question is the understanding that there are plenty of Republicans in the Senate who also can't deal with Trump and, you know, chafe at Trumpism. They're conservatives, they're Republicans, but they're Republicans in the style of what's traditionally been the Republican Party and don't like the kind of thing he's doing today, claiming, you know, stop the count in Pennsylvania for no reason, right? Right. Um, The thing is, under other circumstances, there would be a big sigh of relief. But the outcome of this election means that, you know, this was not a repudiation of Trumpism. And it wasn't even, it doesn't mean Trumpism is going to be gone from Washington because of what we just discussed. It looks like the Senate will be a majority Republican narrowly or at at best 50-50 for Democrats at best. And that means that, you know, the Republicans aren't going to revert to a kind of Mitt Romney style Republicanism. They're still in the, you know, universe of, they have to, you know, work with the Trump base. And so it's going to be a different kind of politics in Washington where you're going to have Senate Republicans, you know, my guess is trying, you know, resisting, they're partly defined by resisting Democrats, right? And creating a fight. And then you'll have a Democratic president who's going to try to pass like COVID relief and stimulus and all these things. And he needs compromise. And Biden is geared to compromise. That's how he thinks of working in Washington. It's his background. But can he get it in this circumstance? Trump defines the Republican Party now and after this election. God, that's so wild. It's true, you know, and I think, you know, we have someone like a QAnon supporter going to (laughs) Congress. I mean, what is happening? What is happening? It's truly it's it's completely bananas. And yeah, I mean, I grew up in Montana, so I grew up in a conservative state But nothing like this, you know, it wasn't it was nothing like this. So I don't see how we recover. But I guess that's sort of the point. We're going to have to stay on the mat to really understand what's happening and and work it out. And it probably will only become more polarized. I mean, you look at the results at this point and it is so extreme, right? It's like the battle states, the battlegrounds are battlegrounds, but everything else is so wide. I will say this you know, if it's any comfort, which is when you have, whether Biden wins by a little or by a lot, whoever becomes president is president. Think about how narrowly Trump won. 
barely. That did not stop him from, you know, putting his own stamp on the White House and this country, right? Yeah. So, you know, once there's a president and if it's Biden, the tenor of our politics will change because he's a different kind of leader. And I do think that informs how everybody else in, engages, right? And yeah. he does have tools as executive to make changes unilaterally, right? You know, when it comes to COVID response and getting us ready for a vaccine and all those things that I think will help sort of calm the electorate and calm us down a bit. Yeah. I think his leadership style signals, you know, unity and calm and all those things. So once, if he's in the White House, it things do change. Right. Yeah. One thing that I think is really interesting, and then I want to talk about sort of the state of the news in general, is that Clinton, she must be feeling weirdly vindicated because, you know, I think she was sort of set up as someone who lost that it was an election that was hers to lose. Mm -hmm. And here, even after four years and the pandemic, we're still nail biting. It's pretty she must feel not, I mean, clearly not happy, but also sort of a little vindicated by how tight this has been. I mean, have you seen those memes of her kind of like, uh-huh, I, you know, <laughs> uh, I told you, girl, kind of thing. Like, hey, girl, you surprised by this? I've been there. So, yeah, I mean, we got to think a lot about what we don't understand about how these elections, you know, campaigning is changing and it's so hard because of COVID, but yes, I do think that for for Hillary Clinton, this is a moment of like, wasn't just me. Right. It wasn't just her. So speaking of how things will change, the news is changing and you're a testament to that. I mean, you, I follow you rapidly mm -hmm. and as do many of my friends, my parents, we, I love your style. So thank you. I mean, it's, you ask all the questions that I would ask. You have the most interesting guests. And you were, you obviously grew up in a newsroom. But how do you think, as sort of a model of a different type of reporting, do you think that the, that TV news will change or do you think it will continue to become more politicized, more polarizing, more dramatic as people bid for ratings? I think that TV news is what it is and it's going to be more so, right? Like they're trying to get the largest share of the pie and for the least amount of money. And that's how we should, you know, cable news does it. So all of those things, panel discussions and, you know, back and forth. But I think that it's created this, like there's this need for something else. There's an audience that I always say that wants information told differently. Yeah. And I think that there's just, you know, opportunity, I, you know, I'll just say that I left to do it because I just felt like we were always chasing undecided voters who were overwhelmingly women. And the attitude was always like, they just don't care about politics. And I'd be out there talking to them. I'm like, they do. They just don't want to hear the dog fight. Right. They actually want to know some information, like the nuts and bolts stuff that's often considered too boring. And so that's what I've focused on. So I think I think there's an appetite and we're going to only see more of, you know, unique voices who are doing independent media in the digital space. My dream is to find an umbrella for a lot of voices where, you know, you put together like a group of people who are, you know, all doing what I do and, you know, 
you can come to us to, you know, help with decisions in all these categories, right? Yeah. And I do think that the future is sort of following instead of, you know, the news brands, you tr- but news personalities a little bit that you trust and then the people they trust and they refer you to. Totally. And I think that, you know, what you do, which is not the format of, of cable news, and it's certainly not the format of, of traditional reporting in newspapers where people are, you know, going out to multiple sources, compiling a story, you know, finding that lead, et cetera, is you're just, it's, it's like NPR, it's radio, it's hearing the experts talk, asking fantastic, well-researched questions so that the people who are consuming can feel like they're informed and they can make up their own minds. Not that you don't do analysis, but it certainly feels like a far more respectful way to give people information than to sort of spin them the way that we've all become accustomed to being spun. What I say is I I try to do information, not a panic attack. So (laughs) my philosophy is that part of the way TV news gets ratings is by competing for your anxiety. Like, Mm. how can we make the conflict in the story even more intense to trigger a fear response so that you're addicted to watching more? And I want to revert, I want to undo that so that you don't feel that when you're coming to me. And what I want to be able to do is give you enough information that you feel informed, but not such a fire hose of things that you're confused about what matters. I mean, it's basically curation. Right. It's kind of like, here's what matters. And then here's this other stuff everyone else is talking about. You don't have to worry about that. That's just noise. And I think that's part of what people crave is just clarity on the things that they need to pay attention to and then permission to ignore the stories that are getting a lot of attention but aren't worth your time. And Mm. it's almost – and then another thing that I think is growing in popularity is what a couple of us call meta-journalism, which is kind of surveying the landscape and making sense of everything together in context for you. Mm. You know, I think it was, who wrote, they used to say there's lumpers and there's splitters, people who go split, split, split and go into the detail. And then connectors and lumpers who see the big picture and make sense of it together for you. And I think I'm a lumper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Bad. No. You know what I mean? No, but it makes tons of sense. I mean, I'm so grateful. Like speaking of lumping, I'm interviewing Mm -hmm. Isabel Wilkerson later this week. And I feel like her like Cass, like to read that book suddenly puts history into context and everything starts to make sense as a filter. And those systems of understanding are so essential because otherwise you sit and you spin, right? Because you're struggling to try to understand something that feels so foreign, whereas her reporting is incredible and what she puts forth, you're like, oh, I get it. I understand what people are voting for. I understand why it seems like people are voting against their own interests. They're voting to maintain their hegemony as white people. And you need people who understand, who pay attention to enough to make, like, sort of distill it for you. Totally. In this information landscape, we need people like her because there's just too much coming at you. Right. And it's hard to understand history as it's happening without that essential context. And we get the inverse because you're just, every notification is like a firebomb going off, right? And you're like, does this one matter? Do I need to, you know? What do you, how do you consume the news? Do you pay, like, I know we're all watching CNN and MSNBC and Fox News, everything right now, but what what are your trusted sources? 
So I am a CNN devotee because I've, oh, I'm a news junkie and I came from there and I know the people and, you know, I've been vocally critical of a lot of what they've done, but I think that the reporters who work there are badass. And that's true at, honestly, NBC, ABC, CBS. There's just like really talented reporting pools. But what I do is I have I have two TVs on during the day and I flip among, it's just the two, three would be too many, but I flip between <laughs> then MS and Fox. I have a Twitter feed that, you know, I just built over years of being in the news. So the first thing I do is I look at, it's awful Twitter in the morning and I kind of like <laughs> see the things, right? Like I have the people I trust most on this and that. For example, like until in the last two weeks, it's been the data analyst telling me about the states, but going forward, it's going to be the legal analyst telling me about the court cases, right? And then yeah. they're my favorites who are on COVID and, you know, Andy Slavitt and that crew that I follow on COVID. And then I get, you know, Axios, Politico, Political Wire. I mean, it's kind of like being, you just like a secret service. You just survey the landscape back and forth, back and forth all day. <laughs> Do you, and it seems this way, and and maybe this is this as messed up as this may seem to, to as this may sound to other Democrats, perhaps the silver lining here, and I know that there's some good news from the night, but perhaps the silver lining here is that we are sort of still on the knife's blade, right? That Trumpism is still alive and well, and we have to stay awake. We have to stay engaged. There's so much work for us to do. I'm sure it won't be the same in, you know, in the pre-election runoff, but do you anticipate that people will be engaging with the news, engaging with your channel in an ongoing way? You know, somebody I talked to, I'm going to say this wrong, but I talked to an engineer who told me that the third law of thermodynamics, I think that's it, is that you never, chaos only increases in a system. Once introduced, it never diminishes. And oh, wow. I know that sounds stressful, but I think it means that this level of engagement won't, people might take a break when it's clear who the president is going to be, but there is no looking away now. Right. And if there's one thing that the Trump era did is it woke people up to the fact that this is your country and that you make the decisions. You know, I get I talk to my audience a lot on DM. And one thing I used I get a ton of is who's going to fix this? Why is this allowed to happen? And it used to be much more. Why is this allowed? And I would always say, because you're letting it happen. This is your country. You have to get involved and make a difference. And people would be like, I don't understand. It's not my thing. Now I'm getting, what can I do? Right. And one of the missions I have going forward is to like make some of this stuff that's invisible, more transparent, like how political organizing works, how all people get change done. And I do think that people are awake now to the fact that if you want change, you have to participate in that somehow. And I'm not talking about political advocacy. I don't take a position you know, I'm like, it's just like you got to care and you got to engage and it's on you. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, my fantasy, and this is obviously the farthest thing from happening in this current political system, is that we become an electorate that is very well educated about issues and that we can start to be sort of cogent, coherent thought leaders on these issues and that we can see that so many of the things that that so many on so many of the issues were were united. And I feel like this, the way that we've been polarized, the reality is 
you know, I sound it sounds so trite, but most of us want common sense gun laws. Most of us are are pro-choice, etc. And somehow we've been divided along these lines and are in this very extreme political system that doesn't actually really represent how we feel. I don't know how to get past that, but I do think it has to start. It starts it starts on the state level. I'd love to see people more engaged in in state politics also because we're going to be relying on them for our freedoms with the Supreme Court looking the way that it does. Speaking of, what do you think, you know, in terms of the Affordable Care Act, in terms of potentially adding more justices to the Supreme Court, is that just a pipe dream at this point? If Democrats don't control the Senate, they can't add more justices. And right. I, I, I don't know what would happen if it were a 50-50 Senate with Harris breaking the tie. I imagine that could be done. But yeah, that the chances of that are diminishing as the votes come in. We'll see. You know, I think that there's a lot of things that can happen. Do you want to talk about the Affordable Care Act for a minute? Yeah, let's do it because okay. I think that's pretty there's critical. A lot that could happen within that decision. So we know that Amy Coney Barrett has been critical of Justice Roberts' decision to um, uphold the Affordable Care Act. And so there's reason to believe she would rule to change it or gut it in some way. We know that a case, I should say there's a case coming within a week that to challenging the legitimacy of the Affordable Care Act. What, but what the outcome could be is there are many varying versions of it. They could simply say that the way it's paid for now is not legal and you have to find a new pay for. And if mm-hmm. that's the outcome, Congress could fix that. And there's reason to believe both sides would want to because like massive chaos, if not, who knows? They could also just take out the pay for and pre-existing conditions coverage. They could take out that and expanded Medicare. In any of those scenarios, you kind of end up in this space where you have to see, can the state step in and provide some of that? That requires money. The things states don't have, that goes to, can we get a stimulus from Congress to fund the states? It's kind of a mess. Right. And we just don't have visibility into a mess in which particular way until we see their decision. One thing that's, you know, worth keeping in mind is when they issue a decision, they can also say this goes into effect at X date. And so it could be this goes into effect in five years, right? Or in a year so that it gives everybody a minute to find out, to figure out a a plan B. Right. That seems the most humane. Are there any really acute questions that are you're getting flooded with? The biggest question I get is, can the president stop the vote counting? Can the Supreme Court do that? And what right. happened? And the thing on that space is there's no mechanism. I mean, the, for the president to say stop counting votes, everything is on the merits of where you want and where you see an issue, they have to be litigated up from the states in very particular to how the votes are counted in that county or in that state. And so far, the Supreme Court has been really clear that they're going to send everything back to state level decision makers to decide and that they really don't want to be in the middle of adjudicating an election. Right. So so that's up to Pennsylvania, et cetera. Correct. That's to date, that's how they've ruled. Pennsylvania decides, Wisconsin decides, Michigan, et cetera. Now, with Justice Barrett on the court, the calculus could change. But the president still would have to bring a substantive claim. 
And the one that he's brought so far, which is stop counting the ballots in Pennsylvania, is like flatly contradicted by law. You don't right. stop counting ballots that come in lawfully on time, period. Right. There's no crime at this point. There's nothing. There's n- There are no grounds for him to try to sue. It's zero legitimacy in that. It's just about like taking a stand, making the point so he can sow confusion and chaos. Right. And so there's no reason to believe any judge will act on that or that the Supreme Court would. We have to see if he tries to like challenge the count in Arizona where it's close or if that's even like like if that could even make the difference by the time, you know, other states come in. So things right. are super fluid, but the thing to because I'm just saying this because the story is going to shift from counting the votes pretty quickly into the lawsuits. And keep in mind that there are clear state laws on these things and the states usually control and that the Supreme Court has been very consistent about wanting the states to be in charge. Right. And I just from watching governors, it seems like none of them are inclined to give up control over that either. So when do you think we'll know? <laughs> Friday? I think we'll know possibly Thursday if Nevada comes in strong for Biden and and then Pennsylvania. I think we'll probably know by then, but Pennsylvania Friday, Saturday. And we'll know a trend well before then. Right. And do you see Trump conceding or just trying to litigate this until he's kicked out of the office I mean, in January? All indications are he's going to try to litigate it and just endlessly, you know, keep up the fight. I think it's good for his narrative. I think it is good for if he leaves office, his post office life, right? Mm -hmm. You know, to sort of muddy the waters and say that he was robbed or whatever, you know. And the thing to watch for, is there one place where somehow there's a thing that happens that gets traction and then a court case advances? Mm, That, you know, so 2020, of course, this would happen scenario. Right. <laughs> but exactly. It really again goes back to does Biden have enough states where something like that doesn't even matter? Does he have a big enough margin? Already he's spoken and said, he's pointed out that he's won by a bigger margin in Wisconsin and Michigan than Trump won in twenty sixteen, which is really framing the narrative. And I will say that Biden has been quite unlike Hillary Clinton or like Al Gore, to be honest, he has sort of won the race to the podium and defined the narrative and been super forward leaning. And that is what Democrats have failed to do in the past. And, you know, that also means he's shaping the narrative and that gives him a better chance of keeping the calm no matter what the president does. Right. It seems like the message today was very unifying, very calming and sort of a reassurance of, you know, we're one country and I would, I'll be a president for all. So here's hoping, at least on my side. I mean, somebody said, I'm tired of living in interesting times. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, thank you so much for your work. And everyone, please follow Jessica. She's the best. And hopefully there's not such exciting news to report, but I can't imagine that 2021 will be any (laughs) less interesting. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jessica Yellen. For more from Jessica, head to newsnotnoise.com or find her on Instagram at Jessica Yellen. That's Y-E-L-L-I-N. That's it for today's episode. 
If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.